Hi, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Peter, as Mitch said before, and I am currently interning at Village, as we just stated. So I don't know why I'm saying it again, actually. <laughs> Anyways, I'm here to preach the word of God to you tonight, and it's my pleasure to do so. Uh, before we begin, I would like to open in prayer again, just to prepare our hearts for the Lord, as we're going to read through the Bible. Uh, and it's an old prayer by a Scottish minister, but I really do think the words ring true. So let's pray. Divine Spirit, illumine us to the words of the Lord. Show us the wealth of glory that lies beneath the old familiar stories. Teach us the depths of meaning hidden in the songs of Zion. Raise us to the heights of aspiration that is reached by the wings of the prophet. Lift us to the summit of faith that is trod by the feet of the apostle. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen. Nobody likes being put on trial. When I first finished my undergrad degree in design in 2019, the first thing that I needed to do was to get a job in a field that was suitable to me. Easy, right? Well, that's what I thought um, originally until I went through the absolutely grueling and quite frankly humiliating interviewing process. One interview I had in particular was very memorable for me. Ooh. Oh, what did I do? There you go. <laughs> Sorry. For almost two hours, I was interviewed at a design agency by the creative director. He showed a keen interest in my work, admired my passion, um, and he asked about my creativity, and he asked me a multitude of questions. And I thought that I was a shoo-in for this job. However, as he gave me a tour of the office, I felt as though something was a bit off. The director of the company had been explaining to me how he and a friend had begun the agency and was gradually adding new staff to the team. And as I looked out in the open office space, I could see his work colleague right at the back, a middle-aged white man, typing away at his computer, and then everyone else was a beautiful, young, attractive woman. Um, and just as we finished up the tour, another beautiful, young, attractive woman walked through the doors. She was the candidate that I was competing with. Needless to say, I don't think I had the right um, requirements for that job, and I didn't get it. And as the year um, progressed, the world was struck by COVID-19, and I became desperate to find employment. And I applied for any graduate position remotely related to my field. One such position was at a marketing agency in Fortitude Valley. Now, I did not have a marketing degree. And um, if, I, if you don't know, I didn't realize that you needed math skills to work in marketing. Those of you who know me well, math is not my forte at all. Anything past counting the 15, oh, not 15, 10 fingers on my hands might as well be quantum theory to me. <laughs> oh my goodness. And little did I know that at the end of this arduous application form for the job that I applied for, there would be a series of math questions. Literally, my worst nightmare had come to life. Needless to say, once again, I did not get that job. Nobody likes being put on trial. And I was being put on trial by those around me to see if I was fit for the job. And I was viewed as a failure because I could not meet their idea or requirements for the ideal candidate. When we read the pages of Matthew 9, Jesus is the one being put on trial by those around him. He's either too late, he's not religious enough, he's seen as oblivious or even harmful to the people around him. But are these things true? Are these accusations correct? If so, how do we fix a problem like Jesus? Or is it possible that we need to look at Jesus from another angle? 
I think all of these are actually valid questions. And our passage raises all of them today. So let's jump in and see if we can find an answer. So our first assumption is Jesus is inappropriate. Then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but you and your disciples do not fast? You see, within the Jewish faith, particularly while God's people were in exile anticipating the Messiah, the appropriate response for God's people was to fast. Even John the Baptist's own disciple fasted in anticipation of the arrival of their king. So why doesn't Jesus and his disciples fast? Well, it's because the Messiah is here now. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, it's not just math that I need help with. Um, another one of my little quirks, so to speak, is that I often fail to read the fine print, particularly on invitations. John's disciples here think that Jesus should be attending a funeral, but instead he tells them that it's a wedding. Who's misread the memo here, Jesus or John's disciples? Jesus then unpacks what the source of the problem is. He says, nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. The disciples of John fail to see that the Messiah has arrived, and they are still thinking with the perceptions of the old, the old covenant, the old laws, the old customs, the old ways. Now, Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But in order for us to accept him for who he truly is, we can't just attach our old preconceptions about him. We must allow him to give us the new wineskin, so to speak, and allow him to shape us, or we'll miss the party completely. Jesus says, the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus then states that there will be a time in which he's taken away from his beloved, and that is the moment of full separation from the Father at the cross. But I believe this was not permanent, as we hear at the end of Matthew's Gospel, during the Great Commission, Jesus promises, I will be with you till the end of the age. You see, we as Christians were called to celebration, not mourning. In this day and age, that can actually come across as an inappropriate message. One of the pastors at Village Church here recently recounted a story to me in which he had a conversation with a woman who asked with all earnesty, how is it moral to have kids in this kind of world? In this world where our ecosystem is on the verge of collapse and the planet is warming at a rapid pace day by day, water sources and forests are being depleted and desecrated. This woman asked, how could I bring a human life into this world that cannot sustain her? Now this is a valid question, and I don't mean to downplay these issues at all, but a perfect world is not where our hope is. I'll say it again, a perfect world is not where our hope is. Instead, Jesus promises, I will be with you until the end of the age, and that is our cause for celebration. You see, if we have a wrong expectation about Jesus, we are going to be the inappropriate ones. We will be the ones dressed in all black for the funeral when we of all people have reason to rejoice. If we don't shift our expectations like the old wineskins, we cannot obtain this hope, and we may even hurt ourselves in the process of trying to do so. In what other ways, though, did the disciples, and even many of us, have a wrong view of Jesus? And I'm going to say 
Jesus is too late? Have you ever cried out to Jesus for help, but felt that he was too slow in answering? That's what we're going to see in our next story. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for... There we go. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind, and he touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her and said, Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. We learn from this story that the woman had been bleeding for 12 excruciating years. I could not even imagine how a good God could allow such senseless pain and shame to happen to this woman. Not only was she sick, but Jewish law made her excluded from her community until she could get better. However, through faith, just by touching his robe, the woman is restored physically and relationally to God and her people. Unfortunately, though, Jesus' small detour has disastrous consequences as we learn about the man's daughter. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly, Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they all laughed at him. Now, I'm not sure how they kept time back in ancient Israel, but I'm imagining it's a little sundial wristwatch thing, kind of from the Flintstones. Anyways, I don't know. I could see them checking their wrists and pondering, Jesus, where are you? Jesus, you better show up soon. Or, Jesus, I can't believe you're this late. What happens when Jesus arrives again? They think that they're at a funeral, and they mock Jesus. But once again, it's not Jesus who's out of step, but it's those around him. What happens next? She gets up, and she's raised from the dead. How would you rate Jesus' timing in this story? Well, I think I'd actually give him a 10 out of 10, and I'll show you why. You see, both the bleeding woman and the father are probably frustrated with Jesus during the story. The woman had been waiting 12 whole years, and the father just a few hours. However, in waiting, Jesus not only has time to restore this woman back to health and her community, but by waiting to heal the man's daughter, he not only showed power over sickness, but even over death itself by raising her from the dead. Like many of Jesus' miracles, what we mistake for bad timing, Jesus sees as the perfect plan to reveal his glory. How many times have you said in your heart, oh, don't bother now, God, it's too late. It's been too long, God, or this was not in my five-year plan. I have also had a similar experience with God's timing. You see, for a long time, my desire was to do missionary work overseas. However, chronic pain in my back and a pandemic had crushed those dreams to powder. In order to ease my pain, I used to do stretches at night on a yoga mat. And I remember one night praying with my left hand open and my right hand clenched into a fist. And I prayed, God, take away this pain. I've had enough. And in my right hand, I said, God, I can't let go of my dreams. I don't trust you to give me something better. Years later, I can look back and I can see inklings of God's timing being better than mine. If I went overseas when I wanted to, I would have been stuck during a pandemic, and I would not have been prepared to share Christ in an effective way amongst other things. God's timing is not only good, it's actually better than ours. And there's one last assumption about Jesus that I know needs to be addressed too. That will go. Jesus is insidious. Matthew 9, 27, we continue the events of Jesus' healing ministries by opening the eyes of the blind and making the deaf hear. 
However, left without any other options, his opponents charge him with being aligned to the devil himself. Is this skepticism really founded in reality? Or is there something else lurking behind that accusation? You see, many of the Pharisees were open to Jesus being the Messiah. However, they wanted to fit their idea of the Messiah into Jesus. And when Jesus called them out on their hypocrisy, they were left with three options. Pick and choose the teachings of Jesus that they liked, accept his teachings fully, or fully reject him as evil. Clearly, it seems that they chose the latter option. Now, it's very easy to pass judgment on the Pharisees without looking at our own hearts first. Even in this day, we want Jesus to fit our values and beliefs. Many on the political left love Jesus' teaching about the poor and about the treatment of foreigners and women, but they recoil about his outdated views on marriage. Conversely, many conservatives may fully ally with Jesus' moral teachings that fit family values, but they'll disregard any of his views around money and wealth. Think of it like this. I know many of you have journaling Bibles. I think they're very good things, um, and I love that you use them, and I'm grateful that you want to dig deeper into God's Word. However, if you brought out a black marker and started erasing parts of the Bible that you saw was unfit, I think I would have a fit. Jesus doesn't allow us to pick and choose. And if we do that, we are the ones that are fooling ourselves. So are we going to be like the Pharisees and regard him as evil? Or are we going to truly, uh, truly trust him? And that leads me to my last point. What is the correct response to Jesus then? Matthew 9, 27 to 31 gives us not only inklings of the purpose of Jesus's ministry, but also the correct posture of our hearts that we need to accept it. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on our son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men approached him and Jesus said, do you believe that I can do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he continued, uh, then he touched their eyes saying, let it be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Trusting God means surrendering to him. The Pharisees and even Jesus' own disciples had long held beliefs about the Messiah that clouded their vision as to who Jesus was. Matthew 9 gives us the best response to Jesus. And that is a simple faith that says, yes, Lord, I believe. Jesus often uses an outward sign to reveal an inward reality about the hearts of his people. The outward sign of hearing and seeing applies to us today also. If we cling to our false ideas about Jesus, we cannot see him. It's impossible. If we hold to an image of Jesus we've made by ourselves, it is ultimately an idol. But if we come to him in faith, we can hear his magnificent symphony, and if we see him in full, and we can see him in full color for who he truly is. So my call to all of you tonight is exchange your old garments, your old wineskins, your old assumptions, your old timelines, really your idols. Give them to Christ and be transformed. So let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that you have come so the deaf may hear and the blind may see. All too often, God, we've said in our hearts, you're too late, you're too cruel, or you do not care. Lord, the journey we take sometimes seems more like a labyrinth than a straight road, but please walk with us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.